welcome to the podcast edition of Coaching Through Chaos, bringing you what you need to succeed. Now, here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. I bring you guest experts each episode to inspire, motivate, and empower you. Today's guest is a podcaster and a therapist. Dr. Jared DeFife hosts the School of Psych podcast, which launched this past January. Along with Jared's interview here on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast today, Jared is launching the School of Psych episode featuring yours truly. On the School of Psych episode this week, Jared explores who I am, where I come from, some hardships I've overcome, and how I did it. Before we get into Jared's interview, I want to remind you that our next episode will be one of our recurring features with a resource for those who serve. It's going to be a great one. Okay, let's get right into the interview with Dr. Jared DeFife. I'm here with Dr. Jared DeFife. He's a psychologist and the host of the recently launched School of Psych podcast. He's also a professor at Emory University and in private practice in Atlanta. He is a regular blogger on Psychology Today, and his articles have been featured on Yahoo Health, Women's Health, The Huffington Post, and The Psychotherapy Networker, among other places. If you're interested in relationship blogs, you've probably already read one of his articles. Jared, thanks so much for being with me today on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for having me. You know, School of Psych features insightful interviews on psychology, culture, and relationships. But today I'm going to turn the tables on you and interview you. Woo! (laughs) I hope you're prepared. Um, (laughs) We're going to talk about School of Psych and also about how your life story is used to better understand your motivation for the work that you do. So, Jared, I'm excited to get into this interview. Thanks. Me too. Great. So tell me a little bit about the work that you do in Atlanta at your practice. So I launched private practice about a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, and I specialize in working with people who are deep feelers, who who feel their emotions really deeply and intensely. And one of the ways that that really emerges most is through their romantic relationships during times of heartbreak, breakup, infidelity and contemplating divorce. Mm. So that's where I really specialize my practice. Uh, And on the side, or I've recently launched the School of Psych podcast, where we feature really interesting people in the field with stories about psychology and, and about relationships, and really track people's journey along how they develop their perspective and thinking how they do about themselves and each other. And I've enjoyed the first few episodes that I've heard. You've got some really fun guests talking about their own personal stories in the episodes. And we'll look to have a really interesting guest coming up for episode six when, when you make a very special appearance. Yes, I guess we will. <laughs> Now, I know before I go into talking about deep feelers and all those romantic ups and downs that can happen in people's lives, I know you have a fun story about how you decided to become a therapist, and I'd love for you to share it with the audience. Well, actually, there was not really one point of me deciding to become a therapist. It was actually a conglomeration of a lot of moments. 
And I think that really centers around, for me, experiences of feeling my own emotions very deeply and feeling depressed and even kind of working through your own stuff in therapy. There was this moment for me that I remember sixth grade graduation where you were graduating from elementary school and I loved my elementary school teacher. I had her in sixth grade. I had her in kindergarten. And I remember walking home from that day of graduation. There was some book that people had put together about themselves and about how they saw themselves in the future. And I don't remember why I was walking home. This could entirely be a fake screen memory, but I don't remember why I was walking home. I didn't usually, but I do remember at some point there was this, there's this road that led down in between these two ponds. And I just remember feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders and this overwhelming sadness. And I think even then I realized that that's kind of heavy for a 12 year old. So you even had the insight back then to know you're feeling things a little bit differently than other people, or maybe even a lot differently than other kids your own age. Yeah, that I was badly affected by losses, changes, relationships, feelings, feeling rejected, and that I carried that very heavily. And remember being called the sensitive kid or too sensitive. Mm. And I remember carrying those things. And so I think that was actually a huge part of it. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a therapist from a fairly young age, around when I was a teenager. I think in high school, there's uh, programs from the school plays where I would say I'd, I'd wanted to be a psychiatrist. So I've been on a fairly consistent path towards that. I think also watching Frasier has something to do with it. <laughs> I do have a Parson Russell Terrier, and I do now have a podcast, so maybe there was something about that. <laughs> and you've got a bit of the Frasier look to you as well. <laughs> I'm listening. And, and that's, a, that's a compliment. So, um, <laughs> So your life has been on this path, and I want to ask you about that time in your life. You said too sensitive, you're, you had a lot of losses, and you remember feeling rejected, even at a young age. Do you have a story that you could share about that and how that informs what you're doing today? Oh, gosh. Uh, tons of stories. There was always the sixth grade, apparently sixth grade was a big influential part <laughs> of my life, uh, sixth grade skating party where you would want to ask a girl to a couple's skate, but feeling not good enough, feeling rejected from that. I also remember in high school, I did a lot of theater in high school as one of the theater kids. We had a very large high school in Mentor. So there was somewhere to fit in for just about everyone. And I remember sitting on the edge of the stage, probably at the closing night of one of the shows. In my senior year, it was West Side Story. Mm -hmm. But I remember just sitting on the edge of the stage, just kind of dangling my legs over the pit orchestra. And again, it was that same heavy feeling that life just felt different, that life felt like it would never quite be the same. There was this overwhelming sadness. There was this fear about what was coming in the future. And it was so heavy. And I remember struggling under the weight of that pretty much a lot of my childhood and adult life. 
those moments would come and go, of course. Like my parents would also describe me as like a happy child in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But that deep experience of a change or a loss was always something that just stuck with me. That's a really impactful memory to have. And it sounds like a familiar feeling would come back to you. It was very uncomfortable, but familiar. And were you able to make sense of it at the time or were you left very confused? I mean, here's this happy kid or otherwise happy kid and essentially around 12 years old in sixth grade feels the weight of the world on their shoulders. How did you make sense of that or how did you cope with that at the time? Well, you kept going. How do I make sense of it? I don't know if I I make sense of it even to this day. Mm. Certainly the labels, depression, this feeling, though, that something was wrong and, and that something was broken. And the way I made sense of it then was that there was something deeply wrong with me. And I would also even beat myself up for feeling that way because it seemed so self-centered. Like, okay, you're 16. This isn't that and, and you would always get those messages. This isn't that big a deal. Uh-huh. Stop being so sensitive. Stop doing that. Right. So you're getting sent the messages that you're really making more out of this than you need to. Yeah. But how do you do that? Because you do feel those emotions very deeply. This wasn't something that was feigned or put on or being overly dramatic. It was this heavy sense of dread, sadness, loss, but also joy too, and feeling that. And so you throw around all the diagnostic labels, depression, do you think bipolar disorder, all that kind of stuff. And I don't think really any of those were true. I I, I think I was, and I see this a lot in my practice, someone who felt my emotions very deeply and intensely and just really struggled with not having a whole lot of influence about what to do with that and just just how to navigate it and how to understand that. You know, when you're 16, what did you do with it? How did you cope with it? Cried a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was always a highly social person. Okay. So it would be about navigating that, sharing that, connecting with that with friends. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we would talk till all hours of the night. I, t- I, was the, I was the kind of guy who had a lot of female friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you would go out, you would go out to like Perkins. I, I don't know if anyone knows what a oh, Perkins is, but it's yeah. kind of like, like an IHOP or like a Denny's. Right. And, and, you know, you would talk till hours of the night. And that was how I processed stuff was, was I would talk it through with people. And being in theater, you were kind of with other kids who really understood that. Yes. And that was that was part of the way. I think that was the, the most effective way. I mean, I tried other things. I tried, you know, writing about it, but that never really fit me or suited me very much. And, and of course, there was therapy, too, which is a place that you go and talk about feelings like that. And did you find yourself in therapy as a teenager? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're feeling things that deeply, especially when it's the downside of emotions, you know, and you're not making sense of it that there's not like a trigger point. There's not an incident that necessarily causes that to happen. So what happens when you're in that kind of mode as a teenager and something that does trigger it happens? How low did it go for you? 
I imagine do you have a story of feeling rejected by someone as a teenager that maybe was impactful or getting overlooked for a part in a play maybe something that really resonated with you as like this is a bad moment in your young life oh gosh well for me it was mostly romantic I mean academically I was you know, successful academically. I had activities and things like that. Sure, there would be like, okay, you'd not get a part in a play and that would probably sit well. But Mm -hmm. I think romantically was where it had always hit pretty strongly when there was a breakup or someone wasn't into you or just where you're pining after someone. And that was the place that always drew out that deep sense of emotion and loneliness and excitement. And and again, you, you get those messages like, Jared, calm down. Don't take this <laughs> serious. But, you know, it's like, I don't know if people are familiar with the uh, adult attachment scale that talks about sort of adult romantic relationships. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. a top right corner guy. Here's a guy who feels like a lot of anxiety and a lot of preoccupation about relationships, <laughs> uh, which probably influenced how I do what I do and why I feel comfortable navigating those relational problems with people and problems in their love lives. And I know what it's like to feel devastated after a breakup or be pining for someone or be caught in romantic indecision. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the heart of things really are in my practice. And I know your practice was not always the goal, or at least... Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about the earlier part of your career? Because I think it's helpful for people to understand that sometimes we think we know what we want career-wise, and we go for it. And then we find ourselves at a crossroads. Can you talk about your experience of this? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I guess you said sometimes we know what we want and go after it. And I was like, there are people who feel that way. I guess this is my payback because I did always have this path towards wanting to be a therapist. And uh, it was psychiatrist at the time. That was sort of a minor revision. But I, I think I did pay for it later in life because... As I got farther along, and there's the notion of developing a specialty and a client niche, and I have struggled mightily with that. I was really groomed through graduate school towards an academic career path. Right. You spent a lot of time as a research scientist, correct? Yes, I spent a lot of time as a research scientist. So I had always in my academic work balanced on clinical research where you would investigate psychotherapy process and outcome, where you would look at personality variables as related to treatments and, and outcomes and how people were doing. So... You know, after grad school, I was in Boston for internship and postdoc, and both of those were very clinically focused programs. Mm -hmm. But I needed some more hardcore research experience, um, federal grant funded research experience. And there was an opportunity that I got through my postdoc. There was an after my postdoc was ending in Cambridge to move down to Atlanta to join a National Institute of Mental Health grant that looked at personality disorder diagnosis. And we were looking at things for like trying to understand personality disorder diagnostic systems with DSM-5 on the horizon. And that's what really brought me down to Atlanta. And so I worked on a research grant doing that for a few years. And there's this hoped for notion, I guess, in academic circles 
Well, I, I don't even know if it's hoped for anymore. I mean, there are some camps in the field of psychology that are saying we're not training practitioners. We're training scholars. We're training yes. academics and we're training sort of hard science researchers who mm -hmm. are going to go on and build labs and become scholars. Right. There are other programs that say, well, we're training practitioners and, and, the, sci and the science part doesn't factor in. And there's a camp of folks that says those two things should be integrated, science and research and, and practice. Mm -hmm. And that was where I fell. The research informed how I thought about clinical work. My clinical work informed research questions and how I thought about research data. And I just kind of came to this middle ground or this, this falling along the split that was just kind of impossible to navigate because they're both full-time careers. And to try and integrate the two of them, while it's nice in theory, it's incredibly difficult and they don't make it easy on early career folks to try and navigate both of those. If you're a researcher, that's 150% job. Yeah. In many ways, being a clinician is 150% job. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, one of those things really has to give. And I found myself in the academic setting, the more successful I was at it, the more I was accomplishing academically, the less and less happy I was. And that's an interesting conundrum to find yourself in. And so you're doing this and you're doing well at what you're doing. And as you said, you're not feeling what you thought you'd be feeling. You're not happy. You're not satisfied with what you're doing. So how did you make that decision then to leave? And did you get any pushback from the academic setting? It was not easy. You said not satisfied. That I mean, there were some years there of struggle, of really trying to find my identity. There was always this sense of like, yeah, I was good at pushing out research papers and I could execute on a research paper and help people with their data and put it into publishable form and get publications that way. But there was always this sense of why am I not saying, okay, I want to be directing a research project or here's this research question that, that I want to ask. There, there was always kind of that sense there. So you're participating and playing along, but you weren't initiating. You didn't have that drive to initiate at that time. I didn't. Uh, and I think, I don't know if people saw that or suspected that, but you know, when you play along, especially in academia, where you have folks who say, I have all the stuff that I want someone to execute it, you can find yourself falling into it really easily. There's there are things available that you can say, I'm going to do this paper, I'm going to work on this grant that's logical to do because that seems like what you're supposed to do. And so breaking out of that was, was really hard. There was a moment, though, that I, well, a couple of moments, but there was a moment, though, that I knew that I am not proud of mm. and that I knew that I was done. I had been working in this academic medical setting, research grants, clinical projects, um, or clinical work, supervision, teaching, publishing, and feeling just drawn and quartered among all of these different things and feeling frazzled and exhausted and not knowing where my, because there's financial considerations here too, where my secure future would be because you need to obtain 
grant funding for that. Yes. And, I, and and where was that going to come from? Or was my funding going to become from clinical work? Or where who was going to pay me to keep working? Mm-hmm. And that was in really short supply. And so just being frayed and frazzled and overwhelmed, I ended up seeing this paper that had come out as like a pre-press paper. And the first author was someone that I knew and had felt close with. Mm-hmm. And the other authors on the paper were were me and my advisor. And I saw that and I'd never seen this paper before. And I had no idea what this was. Oh. And I lost it. I lost it. My rational brain, when you feel emotions deeply, your rational brain shuts off really easily. <laughs> my rational brain just shut off in a way probably never even have in my life. And the only explanation for this was, well, this guy stole from us. And this guy was using our names to try and advance the thing. And I had reached out and I think I tried to get in touch with him and feeling very impatient, hadn't heard back sort of immediately. And so then I went to the journal editor where this thing was and basically accused this person of, of stealing for that. Mm. And he did get in touch with me mm-hmm. and he was very hurt, uh, understandably so. What was the miscommunication or what was the misunderstanding? I think it was just like a, a simple mix up of we had worked on some other paper and and because you, you submit journal articles kind of in pieces, he hadn't changed the thing on the title page that had gone through. It was a simple mistake that in your moments of calm and thinking that you have a lot of compassion and understanding for someone to do. And he was very disappointed and very hurt. Mm-hmm. And I had just felt like I have lost my soul a little bit. You said you had thought you were close to this person. You said you'd worked on other things. So losing part of your soul that you would be so angered and offended that they might have stolen from you or lost a bit of your soul because of how you thought your friend could have stolen from you. I think because I wasn't open to considering any other possibility. Yes. And okay. I, and I didn't even have the patience to try and talk this out with him and give him a chance to say, like, what, what is this about? Because my mind immediately went there and was mm-hmm. so shut off to any other possibility and was so angry. And I think that was also a signal in my life of there were so many places at that time that I had felt kind of lied to, taken advantage of, and some of that for good reason in other places. And it wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and I said, what am I doing? And what did you do? I don't know what I did immediately after that. I mean, obviously we worked to, to correct the error. But was that the beginning of the end of your research yes, career? Yes, it was. It was. It was the beginning of the end of my academic career. I think at that point I said, I need to either create a position here that I can feel comfortable working in or I've got to leave. And I thought about leaving and I thought, well, you know, this is not endemic to the place I'm at. It's, it's, it's kind of consistent part through academia. And so then I started to say, this is not where I want to be or what I want to be doing. And I started looking to figuring out about leaving. And I started talking to people in private practice and 
And it wasn't a place I had seen myself going or maybe had thought it would be later in the career. But mm-hmm. but this academic path was what I had been groomed for I've, through, through even undergrad and graduate school. So leaving it was kind of crazy. And yes, yeah. uh, to answer your earlier question, there was pushback. Mm-hmm. There was absolutely pushback. As some of it good intention, but also kind of saying like, why would you throw this all away? Yes, because there is that assumed prestige that comes with the professorships and the research grants and the names on the published papers. And when someone rejects what other people strive for in their careers and realize it's not for them, other people don't understand it. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt like it was a rejection of them and what they had given to me through the years. And I had some wonderful academic and research mentors, but I also had some amazing clinical supervisors on internship and postdoc. And I have always been, going back to sixth grade and first grade, kindergarten, I've always been very affectionate and grateful for my teachers and what they have given me. So it hit hard when some of those teachers, they never quite said, I don't approve of what you're doing, but they always question it. Mm. Are you sure? What about this other position? Or, hey, there's some other, I still get. I just last week got an email about a tenure track opening in (laughs) some who knows where, probably for a third of of the income that I'm making. And, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. But it sounds like you have really come into your own in this decision and really truly enjoy what you're doing now and have designed a practice that seeks to help people that you think you can best connect with. And I know you have a a funny pop culture reference to someone who would be the ideal person to walk into your practice. Can you tell me about that? Oh, it's it's Taylor Swift. (laughs) I love that. I heard you say that somewhere that Taylor Swift would be your ideal client. And uh, can you talk about what that means for, uh, for everybody listening? There's teardrops on her guitar. <laughs> uh, she, you know. Uh, the heartbreak queen. I knew you were trouble when you were walked in. Like Taylor Swift is my <laughs> ideal client. You know, <laughs> she, she's creative. She has romantic relationship troubles, a, a deep feeler herself. And I'm like, Taylor, if you're out there and, and you need help navigating these things, call me. I, I don't know if it'll affect the music. I, I, you know, maybe maybe she doesn't want to. Um, but, <laughs> right. but that kind of thing when, you know, there is that kind of push pull in relationships with deep feelers. It's the kind of trust tango. It's like I have a hard and, and I obviously some of these stories illustrate that have a hard time trusting others. But at the same time, it's almost hard to regulate yourself without the help of someone else. It sounds like you've innately grown up being the talk therapist, even if your career took you to different places along the way. And you have a story about a coin toss is going to take us back, I think, to your high school days, but something about a coin toss where even then you were making decisions, helping others with their relationships. Yeah, I was I was probably uh, relationship counseling since since high school. I do remember there was a friend of mine, one of one of the fellow theater kids who was struggling with uh, breaking up with a boyfriend or not. And I, you know, I and 
this, these were the kind of things that you talk, because when you're an adolescent like that, these, these decisions have momentous weight. And, you know, not having my advanced psychotherapy skills that have developed over the years, I said, we'll take out a coin. Uh, and I had her flip the coin and she said, heads. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to break up. And I said, yeah, but how many times did you flip it? And she said, well, a few times. <laughs> I mean, she was looking for the answer that she wanted. And in ways that work still carries today. I have a lot of people who struggle with relationship indecision. Should I stay in a marriage? Should I leave it? Um, this relationship isn't going well. Is it time to break up? Time to go? A lot of people come into therapy and you know, when you specialize in something like relationship struggles or heartbreak, I'm sure you get a lot of people, as you said, coming in looking to you for an answer. And I know that that's not our role. Can you talk about how you maneuver that with your clients and how you see your role in helping them when they are struggling with a decision of whether to stay or leave a relationship? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They want you to be able to give them an answer because they're struggling, because the ambivalence and indecision is is painful and difficult. And it's not really our role to tell them what to do in their marriages or relationships. And I mean, surely I'm opinionated enough and I present that when, when asked, but some of my role is informational. It's about kind of figuring out what, what we know about relationships and what, what relationships work and, and what are some hard reasons for leaving a marriage or a relationship, things like abuse, addiction, and affairs. What are some of the softer reasons, like I just don't feel in love anymore or we don't feel connected. My role is to help them keep their integrity through the process of deciding and to really walk the path with them and understand their perspective and help them see multiple perspectives because when you're in uh, the same way it was for me in academia that at that point where it was like when you're in that and you're feeling it so intensely your thinking is not always clear and you can become very certain about your perspective of things and so sometimes my role is kind of shaking up that perspective and saying well there's another way to look at this what do you think is one of the best ways that someone can really grasp that. Because if you are one of those people like yourself, and I think I even relate to it a bit, where you just feel things so intensely sometimes, especially around relationships. When you're working with someone, what is something that you might do to highlight a different way of looking at their situation? Well, there's one thing that for me works better than, than anything else, and that's mm. empathy. That is being able to share your story with someone else who understands you and where you're coming from. There's a lot of talk about emotion regulation skills and, and skills training and coping. And that's great. And, and I'm not knocking that at all. But one of the greatest regulators of emotions is the empathic understanding and attunement of another human being who gets you, who hears your story, who understands, who connects. And from there, often people create their own coping skills. Now, that's not to say that I don't help people with coping skills and things like that, but I also help people connect with themselves and with me and with others so that they get that feeling of being understood. And I'm positive with that your clients are benefiting immensely from your empathy. You can just hear it when you talk. And 
you know, something else that you're doing now, and I think you've probably been doing it for years as well, is outside of the clinical realm of your work, you are also prolific blogger. (laughs) And I was quite impressed when I went to your website and saw all the articles on the different websites. What fuels your passion for writing? Because these are not necessarily in any way really journal articles. These are blogs on like Psychology Today and Women's Health and the Huffington Post. Can you talk about what fuels your passion for writing and what you get out of it and what you hope others get out of your words? Well, I was a writer since I was a kid. I I always wanted to be because I was a prolific reader. You had to pry books out of my hands on vacations and trips. And and I've always been a, a very heavy reader. And I had always wanted to be a writer and a storyteller I remember I was thinking about in, in preparation for this interview, there was this, there was this book, there was this young authors thing you would do in elementary school. And I oh, remember yeah. this little um, self-made book. It was called the Martyrian X formula. And it was like a total Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde ripoff. And the thing is, I was a terrible fiction writer. <laughs> I was never good. <laughs> I took classes in, in college and creative mm-hmm. writing and, and screenwriting and playwriting. And I just was not very good. And In ways, though, psychology for me has been about hearing people's stories and shaping those stories. It was a huge part of the research project that I did where, yes, we were looking at personality diagnostic systems and collecting data for that. But the heart of that project was about these detailed narrative life interviews that we Mm -hmm. conducted with people where I would sit for two hours with someone and just go through their life story. And kind of by the end of the, as opposed to a standard clinical interview where you say, okay, tell me about, you know, what symptoms, what depression symptoms, what, what, you know, what's your insomnia like and how many hours a night are you sleeping? These were clinical interviews that were designed to be narrative life interviews Mm -hmm. that would walk people through examples of early relationships, early experiences into work experiences, into how they think about themselves and how they relate to their feelings. It would be about two to two to three hour interviews. And I did this with hundreds of people. And it became about hearing those stories and connecting. And the most amazing thing at the end of that would be that they would connect the dots and say, I'd never really thought about it that way, or this makes sense now, or how I'm feeling now makes sense because it's connected to this thing that I've been through in the past. Mm -hmm. And so the writing, the popular press writing, was always about talking about psychology and communicating about psychology and concepts to people in a way that wasn't stuffy and academic and that did Mm -hmm. reach people where they were at. And there's always been a shortfall in that for me, because in some of those blog writings and and, and relationship articles, there's the mm-hmm. five tips, there's the five sure. tips for better life or improve your marriage. And, and it would be about generating these kind of endless list of tips and life hacks and things to think about. And that was not the heart of how I work as a therapist. And that's, that's, not, that's not the soul of what I think helps people change. I think those things are great and tremendous resources, but I also came to feel that something was missing in there. And that's what led me to the podcast. And that's where I wanted us to go now. So we've talked a little bit about School of Psych and 
what you're doing on there, but tell us what's coming up for School of Psych and, well, of course, besides me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I forgot about that for a second. And um, tell us what's coming up on School of Psych podcast and what people can expect of uh, the information and how it's going to be presented to them and what you hope they can take away from it. Yeah. So the podcast started out as a completely different idea. The School of Psych podcast was originally supposed to be about interviews with experts in psychology and psychotherapy. We would talk about things like therapy methods and different schools of psychotherapy and learning about the eclectic mix of what's out there in in like psychotherapy and and in ways was going to be somewhat more technical. Mm-hmm. And then I had my first guest, who was Lisa Lisa Phillips, who was a journalism professor mm-hmm. and a New York Times Modern Love column contributor. And here she tells this story about falling and and almost obsessively kind of stalking a man who didn't love her back. And how that had changed her life and how years later she went to explore the experience and interviewed women about their own romantic obsession and um, unrequited love. Uh And she was an amazing storyteller. And the interview with her and her authenticity, her vulnerability in sharing that and what you can learn from someone's story changed incredibly what I thought about the podcast and what it became. And so I've really strived to make the podcast about talking with people about relationships or psychology, sometimes psychologists and therapists, um, but sometimes journalists, Mm -hmm. about their experiences and digging deep into those experiences and how that shaped how they think about themselves and how they think about other people. We have Margie Kerr on there, who's a sociologist who studies fear, but she talked about her own thrill-seeking experiences, dangling off a thousand-foot tower, (laughs) spending the night in haunted prison. (sighs) Well, she really was looking for some thrills. And what she learned (laughs) about fear from those experiences, not just her academic work, but from those experiences. Talked with my friend Jocelyn Charnas, who, who's New York's wedding doctor and her experiences of being kind of reluctant bride and how she saw about the stresses that people went through in wedding planning and how she started counseling couples and their early wedding experiences. Coming up on our next episode coming out tomorrow, I am super proud of... Um, we have Dr. Janina Scarlett is going to be talking about superhero therapy and how she works with active duty service members and people with chronic pain using the lens of superheroes. And it's really acceptance and commitment therapy, but mm-hmm. it's it's kind of done through pop culture and superheroes. But the thing is, Janina came to this because she has an incredible superhero origin story herself, which is really beyond belief. And so what I hope for in the podcast is that you will hear the development of how someone thinks about people and relationships and the world integrated through their amazing stories and stories that they feel passionate about or have changed them in some way. Well, after hearing that, I am certainly glad to hear that you've taken the show in the direction that you have, because I know I thoroughly enjoyed the episode with Lisa and the unrequited love. That was really... uh, a really good story. And I can't wait to hear the superhero therapy. 
It's incredible. Yeah, it sounds it. And I'm really looking forward to your future episodes. So, Jared, I want to thank you for being with me. And again, we've got Dr. Jared DeFife. And let us know for people who are in the Atlanta area that might want some really nicely empathetic therapy from another deep feeler, where can they find you, that website, and where can they find the School of Psych podcast? So the my clinical practice website, and they link back and forth, but the clinical practice website is dccatlanta.com. But really, uh, most people out there will probably be interested in checking out the podcast, and that's the School of Psych podcast. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Stitcher. We're at my website, schoolofpsych.com. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jared, for being with me today on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. And as with every episode, we will have links to all of Jared's contact information in the blog post that goes along with today's episode. And we'll also throw in a few links to some of his favorite articles that you can find online as well. So thanks again, Jared, for being with me today on the on the podcast. Thanks, Colleen. Thanks so much, Jared. Make sure to check out the School of Psych podcast on iTunes, where it's in the top 10 right now in the science and medicine charts in New and Noteworthy. And just a little friendly reminder that this week's episode of School of Psych features me, and it will help you understand more about how I overcame some hardships in my life and where I find my passion for helping others. I don't talk much about that on this show, so if you've been wondering about me, that's the place to find it. We'll have a link to that episode on the blog post today. And the review I'm selecting this week is from another podcaster. It's from Matt McWilliams, host of the World Changer Show with Matt McWilliams. Matt says, wow, the Coaching Through Chaos podcast is flat out awesome. Good production quality, easy to listen, very impressed. Dr. Colleen, keep bringing it. Thanks, Matt. I will keep bringing it. You can find the World Changer Show on iTunes, where Matt interviews world changers from best-selling authors and successful business owners to other inspiring guests. If you haven't checked him out, it's worth a listen. Next up will be another special episode featuring a resource for those who serve. And I want to say how much I appreciate my military, firefighter, and law enforcement following on Twitter. You all are so supportive, and I'm honored to be able to bring you resources that you may not otherwise know about. Thank you so much for what you do. As always, I want to thank Dr. B for my assistance on the show and BennettSullivanMusic.com for my theme music. I want to remind you that Bennett's interview with his boss, Steve Martin, yes, that Steve Martin, is on a recent blog post on CoachingThroughChaos.com. And I want to encourage everyone to support the Broadway production of Bright Star by Steve Martin and Edie Raquel. Bennett is one of the featured musicians on the stage and he has a video series interviewing stellar guitar and banjo players over at bennettsullivanmusic.com. There are links to all that Bennett Sullivan Music is doing on my recent blog post about him. Just search Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, on coachingthroughchaos.com to find that post. All right, that's it for me. I hope you have a wonderful week, and if you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care. Take care.